Welcome to Crafting a Revolution, the podcast. My name is Katie Freeman, and I'm your host. I bring you interviews with makers, artists, and designers of all kinds from all over the world that identify as female, non-binary, or transgender. This week's guest is Laura Kishimoto, uh, currently uh, resides in Denver, Colorado area. It was a joy to get to speak with Laura and learn more about her story. So let's talk a little bit about her. Laura is a designer and maker living in Denver and a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. She was initially drawn to furniture design because it occupies a unique position between the fields of fine art and design. Furniture can both exist as a product addressing a specific need or as a standalone sculptural object. And in both cases, a user or viewer is necessary to complete the piece of furniture, whether to give it function by physically engaging with it or to give it meaning by imbuing it with their emotional narrative. Laura's creative process is defined by a constant balancing act between her intentions as a designer and the will of her material. With each piece, Laura strives to create a spatially complex, cohesive object that appears to have formed organically without human intervention. And a fun fact, Laura actually has a chair that is located um, in the Denver, Colorado Museum. So if you are in that area, you can go check it out. Uh, I believe it is the Denver, pretty sure it's the Denver Art Museum is where it resides. Um, Before hopping in to the conversation with Laura though, and as you can see, I'm (laughs) I'm stalling and that's why this episode is also late. Um, I've made the very, very difficult decision to, discontinue the podcast. I have four more interviews after this one that I have already had recorded, so I will release those four episodes, Um, and then that will be it for the Crafting a Revolution podcast. Um, I shouldn't say that. I feel like I'm going to throw a fifth one in there where I just kind of wrap things up uh, for the podcast, but it has been a journey. It has been almost five years and, um, we will be very close, if not at, uh, 290 episodes. So almost 300, uh, interviews completed. And, uh, yeah, I've been, I've mostly felt blessed and honored to host this podcast and get to talk with so many amazing people that are out in this world. Uh, And I will absolutely miss that. Uh, That's probably the thing I love the most um, is getting to talk to all of these unique people. And I will just um, stop blubbering on here in a moment and, and just say that I do feel like podcasting is still in my future. Uh, And I'm pretty sure it will probably be uh, interview format type of podcast. Um, It's just not going to be with Crafting a Revolution. So uh, obviously everything will still remain out there and everyone can still listen and enjoy for years to come. I will continue to to, um, pay to host uh, the RSS feed so that everybody can still listen um and yeah that's where that's at uh so with that i do want to make sure i give a big shout out and thanks to the patrons over on patreon so thank you so much uh lee lee runyon annette 513 woodworks katie thompson women of woodworking uh christy twisted twine woodworking jeremy spies 
Sammy, Go Sammy Lee, Rachel, Moody Makes, Laura, Oakley Soap Company, Brandy Studio, Obey, Ellen, Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Designs. Um, especially Ethan, Ellen, and Brandy, uh, you'll probably continue to get big thanks from me because you've been with me. I, uh, Ethan, I know, has been with me since uh, the very first episode. So thank you, thank you, thank you all for your support. It has meant the world to me. Um, anyways, let's, enough of that. Let's hop on into my conversation with Laura. Um, well, I do like to start by asking my guests to introduce themselves. So would you do that for me? Uh, my name is Laura Kishimoto, and I am a sculptural furniture and uh, sculptural object designer. Okay. And what are your uh, pronouns? She, her. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, before we get into talking about your work and, you know, you know, which is what drew me to asking you to be a guest um, on the podcast. I want to take a step back and just ask kind of a broader picture question of, you know, what is the story of Laura from baby Laura to how did you get up to this point of, of being a designer? Um, so, yeah, where like where were you born and, and stuff like that? Uh, I was born in New Fairfield, Connecticut, or actually technically Danbury, Connecticut. Um, both of my parents are scientists specializing in immunology, uh, so they were really scientific about spacing two children three years apart uh, for the ideal sibling uh, compatibility. Um, I pretty much always was into drawing and art. Uh, I did a lot of art classes and paintings uh, and sketches and stuff, um, but I never made three-dimensional art until I went to college. Uh, I had a teacher like growing up, an art teacher who was really great because she, rather than giving you assignments, she made you come up with your own assignment. Um, and one of the main things that I really struggled with um, when I was coming up with assignments with her was taking a single like two-dimensional composition and like coming up with something original that wasn't just sort of like a observational painting or something like that. Uh, so when I got to school and I started to do my first ever three-dimensional work, um, to me, it was kind of, I kind of had like this light bulb moment where we had a 3D teacher. She was a little bit crazy, but she gave us this assignment to like 30 minutes. Uh, and mine was just like balls of sticks hot glued together. Uh, and I told her like, when we were presenting it, I told her, like, oh, it like, looks like chaos from most angles, but from the top, it's supposed to look like a perfect square. And she was like, that's it. Like, that's intention. Like, that's what should be, like, driving your piece. Um, and for me, like, realizing that three-dimensional work was kind of like making drawings like 360 degrees of drawings like making sure that there's a balanced composition from like every angle that you view a piece it helped me think a lot more abstractly than I was ever able to do two-dimensionally um and then that same year uh I took a class in woodworking and we we're just doing like basic half lap joints and carving and stuff like that and I liked how many rules there were. Like I liked that wood strongly objected to so many things and like really kind of set parameters for what what you could and couldn't do. 
uh, and I liked the craftsmanship and like the technicality of it, but also the fact that you could, you could still make art. Um, like it wasn't strictly like a industrial design medium. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's when you said that last part about wood having <clears throat> rules to it. Um, I'm in grad school right now for 3D design and the director of our program said, and, I, and I've heard it said before just in different ways, but I really liked how she said, you have to know the rules in order to break them and like <laughs> an encouragement of, of breaking them, right? Of like understanding, okay, like <laughs> balance and stuff like that to you know, like seating pieces or any kind of furniture design piece, understanding how balance and gravity works, just taking that as an example, in order to, to make it at least seem like you're breaking the rules, um, mm -hmm. even when you're not, right? Like it still has to be a functional piece, but you can make it look and appear and do illusions that people really just have to step back and go, wow, like not not necessarily understanding it right away when they first walk up to it, I think is something that can be interesting. And I think like the the piece I saw of yours um, in a book from our art library was the Yumi chair. And I think that's what mm -hmm. really, um, like that caught my attention. Cause it like, when you first look at it, at least in my brain as somebody who's been doing woodworking for a very long time, and even understanding like wood bending and stuff, it's still like, like how, how did this all work <laughs> together? <laughs> come together. Um, and I think that to me was like what spoke to is like masterfully done is like, it's not something you just walk up to and go, oh, it's just A plus B plus C. Like it actually takes mm -hmm. some thinking through and that adds to the beauty of the piece rather than taking away from, from the piece, so. I think, yeah, I think you probably fall into that same camp, maybe a little bit of, you have to know the rules in order to break them, um, yeah. or at least appear to break them. <laughs> yeah, and sort of trying to walk the line of how far you can go before before they're mm -hmm. utterly broken. Yes. <laughs> um, so was this, um, so you have your undergrad, um degree yes. had did you do a have you done a graduate degree as well or just the undergrad for right now just the undergrad I think that a graduate program would be super cool uh I just have never quite been able to like financially justify it understandably so um it's a but tough yeah, I love, it's a tough hit yeah I love how like safe an educational environment is how you can like just make a complete failure and you have that like supportive community to bounce ideas off of and like make something that is impossible possible mm -hmm. when you made let I just want to stay with the Yumi chair just for a little bit longer when you made that piece were you still in school at that time when you came up with the design at least yeah the the first time I made it I, it was a school project uh okay. the first one is is pretty horrible looking in terms of like <laughs> <laughs> craftsmanship and like at the crit like it was so small that like the the guest critic was fortunately like an incredibly skinny person and he was like just able to wedge himself into the chair <laughs> Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> um, so especially with that, how did you go from, because I know like the biggest problem I think people talk about when they leave school is like you lose mm -hmm. access to all of that, like all the tools, all the equipment, all the technology that you've been used to using for you know how many ever years you've been in school and like finding a way to still continue to make and create 
after school. So like, how did you even come to like, re, you know, redoing that piece in a, in, and reaching the craftsmanship that you wanted after you left school? It definitely, it was like a pretty big shock for me, just like the isolation after you leave school. Uh, but I pretty much after I graduated, I went to Ireland to work for Joseph Walsh. Um, and at that particular studio, they had they were a lot more strict about the line between maker and designer like there wasn't a lot of overlap between those two roles uh so I was working as just a, an intern just like an apprentice maker um with people that had like decades of experience um carving and freeform bending and it was a pretty humbling crash course in craftsmanship like I feel like in school craft was more a means to an end to like achieve the design that you made mm -hmm. and and then this particular studio like I was <laughs> I was pretty over my head for most of it yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I learned I learned a lot just about like what to be looking for like what kind of stuff registers on a subconscious level that people like when they're like touching or interacting with a piece they wouldn't be able to put it into words but like something would feel off um or look unfinished mm -hmm. yeah I'm, I'm really glad you 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 brought that up in in that way of like the the line between like designer and maker um because i think <clears throat> like there is a line in in culture around that and i still think it's very much true like you know i think probably the majority of people who are like woodworkers or metal workers or you know just are in craft or trade are not seen uh, especially like in the mm -hmm. design world as a designer even though most yeah. of the time when they make those pieces they had to design those pieces and mm -hmm. I know I struggled with that you know I spent years on my own business as a woodworker and designing pieces and feeling like I wasn't getting anywhere that's kind of one of the reasons I went into grad school is just to be like, okay, I need to figure out how this works. Like, how do you get into kind of the design world and you can be seen as somebody who can design as well as just be the person, mm -hmm. I don't want to say just be the person, but the person who also <laughs> makes the stuff. Um, and it's just, it's, it's interesting how uh, siloed maybe people try to really keep those two things. And mm -hmm. I see it within the graduate program, right? The focus is on the design as it should be because that's what the program is. Um, but very little time is spent on like teaching how to bring somebody's mm -hmm. vision fully together. Like, how do you make that work? Um, so I just, I'm curious, you came from, I believe you went to RISD, which is, you know, phenomenal. One of the best schools there are for design and mm -hmm. then you go and you intern and you're woodworking mm -hmm. and making like how did that feel to you did you feel like it was two separate worlds or um I'd say all in all it was like a it was like a very big adjustment um on a lot of different levels um at RISD, like, everybody is, has more of an artist mentality. Um, everyone is, like, roughly the same age, the same, like, socioeconomic class. Um, everyone is, like, young and keen and, like, very individualistic. And in Ireland, uh, well, like, just adjusting to the fact that, like, I was living in a village of 74 people 
Uh, and then working in a studio that was like mostly much older, much more experienced men. Um, yeah, to, to me, it was a really big adjustment. I wasn't really happy while I was there, but I did learn a lot. Mm-hmm. What do you feel you brought back with you from that experience? Like, like how have you formed your own, I guess, identity now that you've, you know, you've come back uh, from that internship? And, and I guess, you know, we haven't talked about any other work you've done since the, since then to now but I mean like how how have you used those experiences school Ireland plus to form your own identity I think I'm still working on the identity part uh that's fair to me to me um interning made me feel a lot more connected to the material um, and a lot more uh, I guess conscious of like how many different ways people can like interact with a piece of furniture like um, just like looking at something sitting on something like over time sort of like developing a an emotional relationship with the piece but also just sort of like the the feelings that you get like when you're like actually in sitting in the piece of furniture and like looking at the negative space and I don't mm-hmm. yeah I don't really know if I have a clear sense of identity um <laughs> do you do you think that I mean all those things you just brought up ha- I would assume has impacted how you design now Yeah, I do. Um, I do often. I think when I was in school, I was I was designing purely with form. So I wanted to make something that was like very visually engaging. And if you happen to be able to sit in it, that was like a bonus. Um, and now I'm trying to separate it so that like the design of a chair empty and the design of a chair with a person in it are both like equally strong mm. compositions um and that the person sitting in the chair gets their like own unique experience of the mm-hmm. chair that somebody looking at it wouldn't yeah i feel like you have fairly unique um experiences as one of the people I've I've had on the show in that you have a piece that's in a permanent collection in a pretty large museum and what was even that experience like going like just I guess, can you tell us more about that? Um, that was like, it was mostly luck. Uh, <laughs> I had, I was participating in this, this event called Design After Dark, which is a thing that the Denver Art Museum runs where they pick a theme and a bunch of different artists in different, working in different mediums will create sculptures based off of that theme and then they get auctioned off to raise money for the museum uh and I just happened to meet uh the architecture and design curator while I was there um this was like right after I moved to Colorado he was like we don't have the money now but someday we'll buy one of your chairs and then like six years later or something (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he emailed me and he's like, okay, we have, we have the money now. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was kind of dumb luck. Yeah. Um, I think though that, I mean, that really plays to what you were just talking to of like the, I, 
piece being able to stand alone and a piece being able to have people interact with it physically and it still mm -hmm. um, creates that inexperience whether you're interacting with it or you're just you're just looking at it um, and I think mm -hmm. that I mean that's a lot of what art is in museums is a lot of you know we're not allowed to touch <laughs> most of the time when yeah. we go to a museum and so um, it has to be visually compelling uh, to be mm -hmm. placed in that sphere as that has whether not necessarily that specifically but how have you grown then are you working for yourself are you working you know uh with others or with for a company how have you grown into kind of post school posts all of that um into like what what you do now? Um, currently, I am an instructor uh, at the Fine Woodworking Program of Red Rocks Community College. Uh, and then I also work for myself and I have my own shop uh, and I take commissions and also make spec work. And then I'll do some occasional contract work uh, for like small production companies. And how do you balance all of that? Because that's all very different, uh, <laughs> very different in the workload, work type. Um, you know, it takes different type of energy to do all of those things. Yeah, I wouldn't say I balance them very well. Um, I... <laughs> For me, like teaching has been like a really great way to stay connected to an educational environment because like teaching something is like one of the most effective ways to learn. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, like uh, at the moment, I'm just teaching a bending and laminations class, but I've taught like the design class and the intro class and uh, chair making and stuff like that. And for me, like having to prepare those curriculums and lectures and demos has been a really helpful way to become hyper aware of a lot of techniques and how I process information um, and then doing my own work um, it, it's definitely like I, I still haven't gotten to the point where I can like, I feel to call myself a successful business. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> for me, it, it like is, is um, I've, uh, I have worked like pretty closely with uh, people I, who more identify with the, the, with like woodworker or with craftsman mm -hmm. Um who have more of an engineering mindset. So I will come up with unique problems uh, and <laughs> they will help me find solutions. So I had this uh, this friend named Andy Lasser, who's right now in engineering school and, and we've built uh, several chairs together and sort of like help streamline that process. I don't know if that answered the question. No, that does. I mean, and that also that also brings up uh, just interesting to me, at least, because I often think that, um, you know, I'm a non-traditional grad student, like I've got kids, I've got a family, I, you know, worked in industry for almost 20 years uh, past grad, uh, undergrad, wow. and I worked in basically in engineering and so to come in and, mm -hmm. and my undergrad was more uh, focused on engineering so going into mm -hmm. design like my mind automatically starts with the problem of like how am I going to put this together before I even think about like what 
<laughs> the design is going to be my mind automatically uh -huh. is like how am I going to put it together how is it going to stand up how is it going to you know meet all of these other criteria and then it's like last comes like the aesthetics <laughs> and like how I want that to to look um and it's actually been kind of a struggle you know of going mm -hmm. back and forth to sometimes I have to tell myself to to shut the engineering brain off so that I can mm -hmm. allow the creative side to just come out come up and come up with forms and shapes and colors and throw everything out and then kind of reel it back in of like okay I have a general concept of what I want it to look like now how do I make that work it's just an interesting mm -hmm. balance has been a very interesting balance and sometimes I'm a little bit I'm a little envious of those who have come into the program straight out of undergrad and don't have this other, I guess, mm -hmm. muscle as, you know, built up as I do, because I feel like they get to the design so much quicker because they are less focused on all of the little mm -hmm. details that I don't think you start to think about until you start to actually physically start trying to make it work. Um, that's when they start having those problems versus me. I'm already there in my head. The second the, the prompt comes out, I'm already there of like, well, that's going to be a problem. How do I fix that before I allow myself to kind of free flow think? So it's, it's, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm I definitely with, with the experience, I definitely find myself a lot more locked into like, how am I going to make this? Like, what is the joiner going to look like? Um, yeah. Usually when, I, when I'm when i like sketching ideas out initially, I like to work with strips of paper and tape just because paper, even though it's technically a three-dimensional object, it behaves like a two-dimensional mm -hmm. object. So it kind of lets you cheat reality a lot of the times. Yep. Uh, so I'll make something trying to completely disregard how I'm going to be making it and then yeah. reverse engineer uh, how it's going to come together. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely the same. That's actually um, before coming to grad school, I have never ever made um, models of my pieces before oh, wow. starting. I had always just basically idea, start building it. And Oh, wow. Two things. Number one, I have no idea how I made it that long without my pieces falling apart, <laughs> without doing models. <laughs> and number two, like that in itself has been freeing. Like, you know, some of my very first assignments was like, okay, take a piece of paper and you're just going mm -hmm. to sketch with paper. And that was the first time I'd ever done that. And to your point, like that was super freeing because that mm -hmm. allowed me to stop thinking about, well, how am I actually going to make that work? It allowed me mm -hmm. to just look at the form and the shape. And I definitely think it's driven my design way farther than, you know, anything else, just in that small little process of its own. So I think, I think sketching with paper and tape is, is kind of critical. It's one of those things that people should do more of even people who aren't thought of as designers who work in mm -hmm. woodworking and metalworking and all of those things like if they even just took a few minutes with paper to try to put together their ideas it also probably will help troubleshoot problem areas a little sooner rather than later yeah I think um for me it's also sort of like being able to gain a little bit of distance between yourself and your ideas because if you have the willpower to take a model that you just spent like an hour making and then cut it up and then glue it back together in a different configuration like it helps you like stay a little bit more objective about your work and not get like super precious about a particular line of thinking just because you've like invested the time into it mm -hmm. 
Is that something that you ever struggle with still now? Like, is there ever a time where something becomes like super precious to you? Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it can be really difficult, especially like without the educational environment with people who are able to like give you their their point of view. Um, I feel like it could get really easy to lock down on a particular idea uh, and just sort yeah. of have like a sunk cost attachment to something. Mm -hmm. um, but at least during the model making part, like I, it's something I try to detach myself to. Once I start working in the materials, it becomes a lot harder to yeah. completely change direction with the design. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also a very uh, good point. Um, again, before grad school, I was only working by myself. And I think that also led me to jump into making so much quicker and spend less time thinking on the design. Um, I honestly, that is, I'm like, I can already start grieving it and I still have you know, two and a two years left of my program, the just the loss of the feedback, like that is mm. such a crucial thing. Like, and it like to your point, it can make you see things that you didn't see were there. It can make you tweak things, um, and even on the like the precious point, like there have been times you know now where I'll present a design idea. And it's several iterations down the line. And I feel like, oh, this is it. Uh -huh. Like I have nailed this. This is fantastic. And then I still am getting feedback, you know, from my professor. And sometimes in my head, I'm like, oh, I just want to be done and ready to go and make this thing. Um, I could even be quite mad at the moment that I have to change, you know, whatever it was, uh, whatever feedback she gave me. But in the end, it is always better than what I imagined. Like if I had stopped, if I had said, nope, I'm not taking that feedback mm -hmm. and I'm just going to create it as is, I can see just in the what the actual object became that it was better than what it would have been. So I think it'd be really cool if there was just these, I don't know, professional groups that could could help provide that, you know, once you get past college in this environment mm -hmm. that's, you're constantly getting feedback. Like, I think we still need that. Like, we're not fully formed yeah. designers all of a sudden just because we have a degree. Like, we still need other feedback and input. And it's really harsh to think that the only feedback you get is when it's presented to an audience and they either like it or don't. <laughs> and, that feels like pretty harsh in comparison to, you know, that as you're going feedback. Yeah, I, I definitely think that like sharing ideas and being really open with your process, like being vulnerable about your process to people is like, is how innovation happens. Uh, mm -hmm. To me, it's always a little bit depressing when a designer like refuses to show how they make something or how they'd like develop a particular idea because like people are always going to process it through their own brains and come up with something completely different um mm -hmm. but yeah to, to me that's sort of like its own form of preciousness is like becoming like really uh territorial around like a particular technique or mm -hmm form or something like that and like not letting other people uh experiment with the with it yeah yeah absolutely I know that's always been one of my big goals of like me being on social media is even if I'm giving it to you in little bite-sized pieces like mm -hmm. the only time I ever maybe hide a technique is when I haven't figured it all out yet <laughs> that's usually the only time I do but I'm even starting to try to get better about that about being like look I tried this and it failed miserably uh here's what I with um 
because it is about innovation. And I would rather see somebody be able to take whatever idea I came up with. And then I love seeing how they take it in their own direction and come up with something, mm -hmm. you know, I hadn't even thought of. Like, I think that's awesome because I get excited just by seeing new things, creative things, and people come up with new things. Mm. Now, you're also, I saw, going to be teaching at Arrowmount this summer, right? Uh, Anderson Ranch. Oh, Anderson Ranch, that's right. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a CNC class, kind of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I mean that piqued my interest when you when with the title of it I definitely uh, was looking into it um, but it's CNC molds right for for being able to make certain things or bend certain things yeah um, I've I've taught like several different versions of a bent lamination class and like one of the things I was consistently running into is that students would get so bogged down in like the mold and jig making process that they wouldn't have time to uh, test stuff out and fail and adapt and like make a new iteration. Uh, so the hope with that class, I'm still like pretty scared of teaching it because uh, <laughs> I've I've never um, taught like CAD software or like um, toolpath writing software okay. formally to people. But the hope with that class is that people will be able to rapidly prototype um, molds or jigs or fixtures and like test out ideas uh, and then like dial in a particular process or form or something like that without without like being worried about like sinking a bunch of time into something that's not going to work mm -hmm. um but it, it's a one-week class so I'm not I'm not exactly sure what everyone's going to go home with um <laughs> I mean it is it is a tight timeline I'm just so I'm curious what uh what CAD software and what uh, toolpath software are you working with? Uh, for CAD, we're going to be using Rhino, um, which for me is my my go-to software. I just think it is a bit more intuitive than AutoCAD and and other more like, like engineering based programs because uh, mm -hmm. it lets you make impossible surfaces like uh -huh. there's a surface like intersecting with itself um and then you can like figure out what what went wrong mm -hmm. um versus a lot of the more like engineering based softwares just tell you like error like that's that's not possible right uh, <laughs> and then the the toolpath rating software is going to be aspire which i actually haven't used very much i've only used um rhinocam uh, so mm. that's something I've been trying to teach myself over the next few months so that I can uh, hopefully teach other people this summer. Yeah, softwares are not easy to teach. Um, as part of with grad school, the program that I'm in is pretty nice in the fact that the program's all paid for it's all paid for because we're TAs and we teach, you know, undergrad oh. um, mm -hmm. courses. And so one is like design fundamentals, which is basically just code for 50 million different types of software that we're going to teach you just a little bit of um, <laughs> so that you can see if this is something you want to go do. Um, and so it's been it's definitely been interesting because in my undergrad in engineering, I did like, yes, AutoCAD um, at the time, which was forever ago. It was like Pro-E was also engineering software, mm -hmm. um, Inventor, SolidWorks, those kind of things. And so now like this, I'm actually teaching Rhino right now. And I'm teaching oh, nice. just the basics because going from AutoCAD to Rhino has really been messing with my head. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so it's, it's, but I can see the intuitive part at first. I was a little like, I just don't understand this. I'm not, you know, grasping it, um, which is frustrating for me because CAD softwares usually come pretty, pretty easy to me. Um, Mm -hmm. But I can see like what it's been helpful for in the class I'm teaching is things like we're doing flat pack furniture this semester and, you know, designing flat pack furniture. And so having to design furniture that can come apart and be put back together without hardware is just all going to be on plywood. And so to be able to see even where those joints could be and how you could make them, Rhino is really nice for that. Like, because you can overlap the pieces and you can slice it and split it. So you can actually see dimensionally like, no, this is exactly at this point, and this is where we need to make this joint happen. So it definitely, as I've, you know, worked with it and used it more, I, I like it a lot. I still don't know how confident I would be in my 3D modeling skills in it, but maybe as I can get there. Um, we use 3DS Max a lot for our kind of free form modeling. Um and that has a lot to it too it's um it's an autodesk software as well Uh, Mm um and it has a like it has a lot of power to it and it's really good for rendering and all of that stuff too so um yeah but they're completely rhino and 3ds max are (laughs) opposite ends of the spectrum so uh even and i'm sure you can understand this even small things of like how you navigate around the space with a mouse is different from software to software (laughs) yeah i feel like uh the hardest thing about teaching it is that you forget what you didn't know to start off with (laughs) so you're doing like keyboard shortcuts and stuff without even thinking about it and students Mm -hmm. are like wait like what did what did you just do right there right (laughs) <laughs> do you teach um any CAD now with um the college that you're teaching at? Uh I don't teach a CAD class, but I will often teach it informally as part of like the, the intro or the um Bentlam classes just because I, I find it to be like a really useful tool. Um yeah. even just like drawing a master template for something and printing it out and just pasting it onto a piece of like masonite or mdf i feel mm-hmm. like can really speed up the process yeah absolutely yep yeah same same here when we get to model making it's nice to just be able to even just print it out so you can see where to cut mm-hmm. it um so you can do something fairly quick in the wood mm-hmm. shop to see if your idea will work or not work um before you put money into more expensive materials and and take the time to program a CNC or whatever might be the case. Um, do you in your own practice get to work with a CNC like this class that you're going to be teaching? Like, is this something you do in your own practice, this rapid prototyping? Um, I used to run used shop to- space with a shop that actually had um, a CNC in it. So I did use it a lot more often then. Uh, I'll still like outsource CNC work now when I'm coming up with something, but it's really helpful to like, um, when I was like making a particular chair, uh, it was going to be all three-dimensional compound curves, uh, but I still wanted it to hold the body in a supportive way. Um, so I just kept cutting out different profiles that were informing the shape of the bends uh, and testing them out and figuring out what was working, what was not, uh, or like when a a table needed a support piece, like trying to make, trying a bunch of different shapes to see what would like flow into the original design and look like it was always supposed to uh, be there. Um, And it's also really useful for, because when you've used the CNC, you've basically told the CNC where something exists. 
Uh, mm-hmm. You can go back in if you've cut a mold on the CNC, you can go back in, flip that mold surface, uh, put your piece on the CNC and then have it uh, do edge work on the piece or drill holes mm-hmm. in the piece. Um, so I don't use it as often as I used to, but I find it uh, really useful for just like speeding up the mm-hmm. R and D process. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, like if you had to say you're like pick an average number of design iterations you go through for a piece before you're like this is it what would you say like ballpark do you feel like you go through to get to your final piece uh i don't really know uh there's usually just like a pile of ugly models um that are just (laughs) like i don't know maybe like maybe I'll I'll start with like eight to 10 different like directions that I'm exploring, mm-hmm. like different forms. And then like, once I find a form that I'm really interested in, then I'll probably do like three to four iterations of it until I feel like it's starting to get somewhere. Uh, then I'll usually do a full scale prototype uh, just to see how it feels spatially mm-hmm. um, interacting with it. Um, and then I'll make my first piece, which inevitably also turns into a prototype because I've made some kind of like <laughs> horrible mistake. Uh, and then usually I'll do like a last piece after that. So then two questions off of that, I guess. What's your primary material you go to for your um, making a pro- your, that first full-size prototype? Usually what I'll do, um, because I'm I'm typically working with like compound bends, which are just bends that are curving along multiple planes in space at once. Uh, so I'll usually, um, using Rhino, figure out different reference points that the curve has to pass through or touch or come in contact with. Uh, and I will kind of make a scaffolding out of like mm. two by fours and MDF and stuff to like hold those re- reference points at like where I need them. Uh, and then I'll just take a single layer of veneer and just like staple it in place along the reference points. And if, if it's not working somewhere like taping on another piece of veneer or like mm-hmm. moving a reference point around like until it gets to the point that I, I like it. Okay. And then the next question, which totally just left my mind. I had it there. (laughs) Uh, What do you usually end up doing with that, with your prototype pieces? Um, I'm like a little bit of a hoarder and like, the top of my garage is just filled with like these dusty, gross, half-assembled pieces uh, just because I want to be able to reference them in the future. Um, Mm -hmm. But if most of the time they get destroyed in the process of making the final piece, um, they're definitely not built to last. Yeah. (laughs) Uh all right and then by the time you make your final final piece are you ever tired of the design uh usually my mindset will change a lot uh and that like when i'm first making the piece it's a lot of risk taking and like trial and error to try to get something in my head to exist Mm -hmm. uh and then when I'm making the final final piece 
I become a lot more engaged in like making all my processes reproducible, like making a jig that I could use again in the future for a different application or like making a particular maneuver on the machine a lot more safer and reliable. Um, and just sort of like, I, I'd say I've focused a lot more on the craftsmanship um, and production aspect of it for the, the final, final piece. Um, I think after that, I would probably get bored. Like once I feel like I've dialed in the craftsmanship and the design. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, so, I mean, you mentioned kind of earlier about like you do some work with like small scale, um, like mass, you know, producers or manufacturers. Do you, mm -hmm. um, do you ever hand off then like, this is the process I created in order to make this happen? Or do you just kind of be like, here's the design and here's, you know, a, a final piece type thing and have at it? Like, how do, how does that translate? Like all that work you put into it, not just the design, but also designing the process. Like, how does that translate into handing it off? I usually don't do designs for other people. Um, I'm usually more, um, like I used to work for a cabinet company and we just did like hand made dovetailed drawers like in floating cabinets. Um, so it, usually it's more just like the craft aspect okay. that I'm working on. Okay, so you're not necessarily like having a design that's like leased out to another company to mass produce. I I have not had that. It seems very difficult to like let go <laughs> of your idea. Yeah. Um yeah. What's the largest production run you've done yourself? Like what's the most number of a piece you've made yourself? Um, I've never done, it is one of my goals to, to transition over to more of like a, to like some designs that I, I make production runs off. But right now the most I've ever done was um, five of a single design. Okay. I think that in like in the making aspect of things, um, at least for myself, kind of like what you touched on, like once I get a process dialed in and like a design dialed in, that's kind of when I'm done. Like the idea <laughs> of having to make more of that thing um, tends to lead to lots of procrastination. Uh, on my end just because it's not exciting for me then there's nothing left to mm -hmm. figure out I guess and that's where I get stuck um, and at least that's where I entertain the idea of being able to you know lease that design out so that yes mm -hmm. it could still get mass produced but it's not me doing the producing so mm -hmm. like it's not I don't know it's not me having the headache. I think I think I learned my lesson early on when I had like I made I don't even know I think a hundred coasters and I was like never again. I am never making a square piece of wood ever again. Like it's just not happening. <laughs> uh, you know, so just that idea of like, but I still have all of the creative aspects. I guess is what mm -hmm. draws me into that idea. Yeah, I think um, if I if I were like during COVID, I started a few different projects that I was hoping to make a small batch production. And now they're just sitting unfinished in my shop. But uh, my hope eventually is to develop develop a relationship with like a master maker or mm -hmm. someone who is like a more business oriented, but like somebody who's like equally invested in creating things that has a compatible set of skills mm -hmm. um 
because yeah I've definitely been I've been graduated for a while but I still very acutely feel the isolation um mm -hmm. of designing without like a lot of feedback yeah 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 maybe that's at some point something we could uh chat about offline because I uh I definitely, like I said, I foresee that coming for myself and I don't necessarily <laughs> want to lose that. So, you know, the mm -hmm. idea of even just gathering people that it's like you can share on Zoom with, like, these are the ideas that I've been thinking through, I think could go a long way for everybody involved to just have that connection. And like, there's something to be said too, to be talking with a group of people who are just as excited about talking mm -hmm. about design as they are as about doing design. Um, you know, I, I liken it to like, I come up with this great idea and I like tell my wife and she's like, okay. <laughs> she just doesn't, <laughs> like, that's not her language. Like she just doesn't speak that language. Whereas then I can like go and talk with my fellow grad students and I don't even have to mm -hmm. like speak in full sentences they just automatically like understand what I'm talking about and it's just you know kind of an energy that grows um from that and so there's definitely so much value uh in that just like I need woodworker friends so I can geek out about power tools and we can talk that about mm -hmm. that too um I think there's something about community there is so you're in Colorado now is it was it the college that brought you there or uh, a sense of community that brought you there like what brought you to there uh, a big part of it was because I was moving straight from Ireland where it rained 300 days a year I was looking for the opposite of that uh, and Colorado is sunny <laughs> 300 days a year and had okay. some incredibly arid climate yes. uh, so yeah it was mostly like I need sun for my mental health uh I need to not be like perpetually soggy and wearing long underwear um and then I also just had a a friend who was a graduate student while I was an undergraduate uh invite me out to uh rent shop space from him in exchange for like doing contract work gotcha so. kind of kind of just fell that way well I hope how long have you been there now like in that area pretty long time now I've been here for nine years almost nine okay. years do you I mean, you've, you've mentioned kind of like feeling isolated a, a few times. Do you feel like there is community there around woodworking and design? Like, I definitely feel there probably is with Anderson Ranch. Like, there seems to be kind of a pub there, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but do you, do you feel like you're finding that? Anderson Ranch is definitely really energizing to me every time I go just because there's so many like very ambitious creative people I'd say on the whole I don't lack for a woodworking community uh but mm -hmm. I do have trouble finding designers mm -hmm. might just be lack of effort because I'm not a very social person but uh there tends to be like a lot of a lot of woodworkers in Colorado that are really into like the rustic aesthetic mm. or like uh and that's just something that I just have no interest in at all right um, or or like green on, green and green is really popular here uh which I've really? never been super into <laughs> huh we're actually past our time but I wanted to uh make sure I ask and let you share with people like how can they um find you online and like see what you're up to and what projects you're working on I'm not great with updating social media but uh Instagram will probably have the most recent stuff 
um, just at Kishimoto Design. Uh, and then I finally updated my website after procrastinating for 10 years. Uh, so <laughs> that has recent stuff, although my resume is still like six years old on that at least. That's okay. That's understandable. I'm also currently procrastinating working on my website. So <laughs> I totally understand. <laughs> Um, but I will include links to both of those um, in the show notes for the episode so people can check that out and also encourage anybody who happens to go to the Denver Art Museum to find your uh, Yumi chair and make sure that they check that out as well. Um, and thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Sure. It was really great to meet you, even though it was virtually. Yes, absolutely. All right. Again, that was Laura Kishimoto, a, a furniture and object designer based in Denver, Colorado. I will include the links in the show notes for today's episode so you can follow along with Laura and see what projects she's up to. Um, and best place to find that is the description for the episode on whatever podcast platform you happen to listen on. Um, so I don't have much to ask of you guys this, this week, knowing that uh, there's not too many episodes left in the podcast. So I think what I will ask maybe just as a parting gift is if you could a story about or share about your favorite podcast episode. Um, yeah, I think that would be awesome. Uh, if you do that, please be sure to tag um, not just the podcast at Crafting a Revolution, but also at Freeman Furnishings on Instagram. So I can be sure to see those posts because um, I'm definitely more active on the Freeman Furnishings uh, Instagram page. So if you do that, that would be amazing. It means so much. All right. In the meantime, I will be back next week with a brand new episode. And uh, I hope that you're out there creating, living your dream and uh, crafting a revolution.